Hi, Emmanuel. <laughs> Hi, John. I like that. It's good to see you guys. Oh, man. Um, so I'll start off. I feel like I always start off with like the same kind of story, but I'm just going to start off with it anyway. Um, there was a time where I did a really short uh, missionary term in North Africa. And we got to know a couple of pastors, my team did. These pastors were sort of the head pastors in a community of underground churches. So they were the pastors of a lot of pastors. They came back from a conference that they did in the center of the country, um, and they reported this amazing story. They said that they got together for the conference. There were about 60 underground like house church pastors present at this conference. And they were just having a multi-day conference where they would worship and they would hear some teachings and, and they would get together. And they knew that one of the people at the conference was not the pastor of an underground church. He was absolutely a government informant who was there to watch them, spy on them, report on them, take down names. But they still had their worship services every day. They would sing praises to God and just rejoice and worship. And on the third day of the conference, this man that they all knew was working for the government, he came down front, and he's just weeping. And he said to them, I, I'm not who you think I am. You know, and they, all, they were all like, yes, you are. You know? and, and he said, I'm not who you think I am. Uh, I, I came here to spy on you, and I came here expecting to have to spend a week with just the most vile, corrupted people I could imagine. But what I have experienced here are angels. That's what he said. And he remarked especially about their singing, about their worship of God. And he said, I want to know Jesus. Worship is transformative. Worship alone, those, those pastors were not taking that guy aside and, and working on him. They sort of let him be, and they worshiped in his presence. And that worship transformed him. And in Psalm 145, we actually see that exact same kind of worship. We're invited into it. So I want us to look at what Psalm 145 tells us about worship, but it's got this bigger picture. We're going to look at three different aspects that Psalm 145 is going to teach about or tell us about or show us, however you want to put it. It's going to show us worship. It's going to show us grace of God, and it's going to show us mission. So let's dive in. Let's start looking at worship. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So these are just the first three verses, but they open us up with this picture of worship. And this picture of worship is personal. I will extol I will bless. This picture of worship is pretty intense. He's going to do it every day, forever and ever, forever and ever. He says forever and ever twice, 
which is about as forever endeavory as you can get. Now, when I read this, I sort of feel like this goes beyond earthly worship, what's being described here. Because I have a good sense of what it means to bless the name of the Lord. I sort of struggle sometimes to understand what it means to bless the name of the Lord forever and ever perpetually, right? So on the one hand, it's a little hard to imagine. On the other hand, all of us actually have an experience of heavenly worship, of the kind of worship that's eternal, of the kind of worship where we bless the name of God forever and ever. Um, one way to start thinking about how we have this experience is to talk about the sacramental life. When we talk about the sacramental life, we talk about the way that God meets us every day with daily grace. God gives us daily bread. He gives us the fruit of the vine. He gives us relationship. He gives us shelter. God constantly meets our needs, and that's grace given to us. And what the sacramental life says is that when we receive those things from God, we don't just receive them as ends in themselves, but we receive them as a way of knowing God. We say, God gave this to me, and our first act of worship when we receive a daily grace from God is thanksgiving, or the Greek word might be Eucharist. So we receive grace, and we give thanksgiving, and that actually kind of explains, or at least it gives us a metaphor for why Eucharist is the center of our, life, of our life of worship because that pattern of God giving grace and us receiving and immediately saying thank you is exactly what happens at the table when God gives us grace and he gives us the one thing that actually is good as an end in itself. He gives us himself and we physically, bodily participate in receiving that grace and when we do that, we are gathered in the throne room of heaven. We lift up our hearts, and we are with God in heaven in that eternal worship. And that is the worship that's getting described at the beginning of Psalm 145. It's, I will bless your name forever and ever, eternally. So it's pretty intense. I want us to think about what would it mean for that to describe our lives for a second? For us to say, what does it mean for that to, that to invade us where the Eucharist spreads throughout our life and we actually have that sacramental life? Have you ever been eating a food? Maybe you were talking with a friend and this was your first bite of the meal and it actually it interrupted you. When you put it in your mouth, it interrupted you because it was so good. That you, you stopped and you just went, hmm, that is good. The other day, I was, uh, I was, I don't eat steak, like ever, like maybe once every four years. Um, that's partly because I'm cheap and I probably don't buy good steak. And so, so for me, steak just feels like, yeah, I, I should just put sauce on this and eat it. But Hattie's uncle uh, cooked us steak the other day and I cut into it and I put it in my mouth and I just went, oh, this, this is steak. Like, I don't, I don't even think I need to salt this. Like, this is just so good as it is. And I feel like all of us have had 
some sort of experience like that, even if it's just you're so hot that, that a simple drink of water makes you go, water is so good. But I want you to imagine now that, imagine that the food in your life is so good and then your relationship with God is so good that somehow when you eat, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is actually, great is the Lord. Like, it's a thanksgiving. Like, wow, that food was so good, I have to praise God. Right? And now imagine that it's not just really good food, but it's just like every experience that is a gift from God is just so good that it just creates this doxology. Right? That is a reality that I think is going on at the beginning of Psalm 145. And it's one that we know in part, not, not totally in full, but David takes us all the way there kind of at the end of the psalm. He, he follows it up or he ends the psalm with, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name. So not just me now, but let the whole world be gathered into this sacramental forever and ever kind of worship of God. How do we get there? I guess that's going to be something that I think this psalm does talk about. We'll delay that for now because I want to talk about the next point that I think this psalm, that's, that's the psalm speaking of what worship is like. The psalm also speaks about grace. Grace in the sense of that, that stuff that God daily gives us, that he daily offers to us. Let's look in verse 8 and 9. That's where we'll start. There's a couple of spots here. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So I think that there are two distinct examples of God's amazing grace in these two passages, in these two verses. The first verse where it says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, that is a quote from Exodus 34. And if you were an Israelite singing this psalm, that quote would feel very powerful and meaningful to you because it would recall to you this story of Israel and Moses and the giving of the law when, when Israel had trespassed God's law. As Moses came down from the mountain, and he breaks the tablets because they're worshiping an idol. And God says, I'm going to give you the law again. Come up to the mountain. <laughs> I don't want to see anybody. I'm going to give you this law again. So Moses goes up and, God, and he brings the tablets that God's going to write on. And God passes before him and he proclaims his name. And that's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when the psalmist, when he writes that line, and he's talking about this is a grace from God, his, his graciousness, his mercifulness, the fact that he is slow to anger, Israel remembers, that's the grace I experience as part of the covenant with God. I remember that God gave us the law. I remember that. But then verse 9 talks about something else. Verse 9 goes from that covenantal context, and it says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, some people here would probably start to talk about, uh, may, are there two different kinds of grace? I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about there are two different kinds of relationships, I think, that are laid out here. There's relationship of being in that covenant with God where it's really relationship. And then there's the relationship that's kind of not a relationship. And we see more of that. 
because there's this, like this whole litany of God's grace that's going to happen here. Verses, uh, where have we got it here? Verses 18 through 20. Actually, it's verses, I didn't print this right in my sheet here, but I've got it in my notes. Verses 14 through 20. So let me read some of these. The first group in this litany of God's gracious acts are acts of God, acts of grace, gifts that he gives to people outside the covenant. Verses 14 through 17. The Lord upholds all who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his works. So when when we're talking about the grace of this passage, the grace here is constant. The grace here is overwhelming. It's pure. The goodness of God is clear. The relationship is distant. The only hint that we have of relationship in that section of verses is the eyes of all look to you. The faithfulness of God is absolute. His goodness is absolute. But there's a difference in the relationship if we contrast that with the grace that we see poured out in verses 18 through 20. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Look at at the difference there. So yes, God lifts up all who are falling, but for those who call on him in truth, he is near. And he gives bread and he satisfies all, but to those who fear him, He hears their cry, and he saves them. Again, the goodness of God is absolute. It's perfect. But oh, to have that goodness within the context of that relationship, of that covenant. So we need that covenant relationship. That's what we see for these different examples of grace. We need that. Other people need it. Our starting point for that is going to be Eucharistic worship, the way we've talked about. But how can we grow in that to where it's not, it's not simply something that we maybe experience in part on, on Sunday, but it's something that continues to get more and more? How do we grow in that? How do our children actually learn that and grow in that? How do people who are outside the covenant get brought in? How do we have those moments where the guy who is supposed to inform on us to the government says, There are angels around me. Well, this psalm also talks about mission. There are, I think, two passages, two groups of verses uh, that have to do with mission in this psalm. So the first one is uh, verses 4 through 7. We can look at those. One generation shall commend your works to another. Commend there, actually, just the same word as praise. One generation will praise the mighty works of God to another. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, shall sing aloud of your righteousness. When we talk about one generation declaring to another, that's really beautiful Old Testament language that I love a lot. Don't miss what it practically means. It means things like, 
parents talking to children, elders talking to the congregation, teachers talking to students, mentors talking to disciples. What does it look like? And I said talking, and maybe that was the wrong word. I said talking in all those examples. But if we look at verses 5 through 7 here, there's maybe a little declaring, but there's a lot of singing, right? What does it look like? It looks like worship. Praise your works to another. It's the worship of verses 1 through 3, just done in a way that passes it on from one to another. So we can ask ourselves as we read this, um, are, we, are we doing that? I think one way that we do that is um, if, the, if the table is sort of where we learn this, where we begin to experience it, well, we bring our children into the time of the table. They get to see. They get to see us worshiping at the table of God and offering thanksgiving as we receive. Do we model worship in our home? Do we model worship when we fellowship with each other? Do we model thankfulness? I've been in so many wonderful times of fellowship with the people of God. And in every single one of those times, I am constantly being given the grace of God because I'm having a really good time with friends. That is just a prime moment for doxology, right in the middle of that. In our houses, do we tell of the awesome deeds of God? Do we tell the stories of God to our children? So that's one passage of mission. It's about spreading this worship within the covenantal family. But there's another passage of mission. Uh, verses 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So there, in verse 10, we see the saints of God are praising God so that in verse 12, the children of man, all of humankind, can know God, know him in his actions, know the Lord as the king of the universe, know him as God. So in a few minutes, we are going to have a Thanksgiving feast. We are going to participate in and respond with our bodies to God's grace and worship. But it's not limited to just this time. We can model our whole lives around the Eucharist, around receiving the grace of God and worshiping in response to that with every grace. And when we do that, the picture that Psalm 145 gives us is that worship will spread. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. 